Welcome to Broken Law, the podcast about the law, whose interests it serves, and whose it does not. Brought to you by the American Constitution Society, a 501c3 nonpartisan nonprofit organization. I'm Lindsay Langholz, Senior Director for Policy and Program at ACS. We're only a few short weeks away from Election Day, and in fact, several states already have voting going on. Voters are headed to the polls or mailing in their ballots during the early voting period. We've talked a fair amount about voting on this podcast, whether it be the importance of voting down ballot, what the Supreme Court has done and might do to the Voting Rights Act, and the legal challenges to redistricting plans this cycle. But what is it looking like for voters as they head to the polls? And what effect will these laws and policies have on the midterms? Here to give us a view of what's going on out there is Jonathan Diaz. Jonathan is Senior Legal Counsel for Voting Rights at the Campaign Legal Center. In that role, he litigates voting rights cases on behalf of voters across the United States and works to advance laws and policies that expand the freedom to vote for all Americans. Jonathan, welcome to Broken Law. Thank you. It's great to be here. We're so lucky to have you. Um, You know, in the aftermath of the 2020 election, we saw a number of conservative legislatures rush to pass new voter suppression laws. They didn't get the result they wanted (laughs) in 2020. So, you know, they went and and tried again with a new wave of voter suppression laws. And there were a handful of states, I should say, that also passed laws that expanded access to the ballot box. So this November will be the first time many of these voters are experiencing the effects of these laws. What is new this cycle? What are you looking at as we head into the midterms? Yeah, I think you really sort of hit the nail on the head with that description. In the 2022 general election, maybe more than we've seen in decades, how you vote and how much access you have to the ballot is really going to depend on where you live. States are increasingly diverging in terms of the kinds of access and the amount of access that their residents have to the ballot. You know, following the 2020 election, conservative states or states, you know, controlled by Republican legislators really moved to restrict ballot access. 2020 was obviously a unique election in a lot of ways, most notably because of the pandemic. And because COVID made in-person voting so much less safe than it ever had been. Almost every state expanded access to mail voting and or early voting um, in one way or another in 2020. And that's one of the reasons that we saw such historic levels of turnout in the 2020 election across the board. Men, women, people of all races and ethnicities, all political parties, turnout was really high in 2020. And I think that was in part Because, you know, of course, it was a presidential year and there was a lot of interest, but also states made it really easy for people to vote because of COVID and the hardships that it imposed. But following that election, states that are more conservative or that had Republican leadership rolled back a lot of those expansions and didn't just return to the pre-COVID status quo, but actually made it even harder to vote than it had been before the pandemic. On the other hand, you know, more democratic leaning states either made permanent the expansions that they created during the pandemic or, you know, went even further and, you know, expanded access to early in-person voting and vote by mail. So now in 2022, the rules of when, where, how you can vote have changed for a lot of Americans, but which way they've changed, whether, you know, your polling place that you're used to or your early voting schedule is still available to you 
um, or whether you have more opportunities is really increasingly dependent on what state you live in. The Georgia law got a lot of press when it was passed and there were several copycats. And I think one of the things that kind of stuck out in media coverage was, oh, you can't give water out to voters who are waiting in line, which is awful and and terrible. I think it blows past the fact that there is a long line. It kind of just assumes that there would be a long line that voters would have to wait for. And in Georgia, I know, like many other states, there are sometimes lines eight, nine, 10 hours long. How do we get long lines like that? How how do those lines come about? Is it just because there's so many people that want to vote? Sure. So long lines, you know, in some ways, reflect high turnout. Um, you have to have a lot of people who want to vote in order for the line to get that long. But there's really no reason that people should have to wait in line for hours to vote. And that happens you know, for a number of reasons, but primarily because there are not enough polling locations or because the polling locations are not adequately resourced. Since the Shelby County decision in 2013, we've seen, I think, hundreds, if not thousands of polling places in formerly covered states, primarily in the Deep South, including Georgia, that have closed. And those closures have really dramatically impacted uh, high density communities, so urban and really heavily populated suburban communities, especially those where there are high concentrations of voters of color. So there are less polling places than there used to be. Those polling places are not adequately resourced. And so they just don't have enough, they don't have enough voting machines, they don't have enough personnel to be able to keep the lines moving. And so that's one of the things that leads to long lines. Another factor is the availability of alternate methods of voting. If you have a really robust vote by mail system, and if you have a lot of early voting days, that reduces the strain on polling places on election day itself. So if you're giving people more opportunities to vote, you're spreading them out across, you know, multiple days, multiple methods, and that's reducing the strain on any one individual polling place. Now, you know, lines are inevitable to some to some degree, less people are going to vote during the workday than, you know, maybe at 5 or 6pm. But there are definitely ways that we can reduce the strain. And so as some states go to roll back early voting access or vote by mail access, it's going to exacerbate, in theory, a lot of these lines that that we see in previously covered jurisdictions. Yeah, absolutely. And that sort of dovetails with additional restrictions that many states have passed prohibiting election officials from accepting grants or any private funds or donations, because, you know, the same states that are preventing their county election boards from accepting, you know, grants from nonpartisan foundations or charitable organizations, those same legislatures are not increasing the funding to those counties. They're accepting those grants because they need them. And if the state is going to prevent counties from taking donations and also not give them the funding that they need and also restrict voting by mail and early voting and also keep people from giving food and water to voters in long lines, there's really no conclusion that you can reach other than the state doesn't want people to vote or certain people to vote. Yes, exactly. It, it's a effect that's felt disproportionately, for sure, and, and feels purposeful at times. You mentioned Shelby County. I would love to ask what role the court has played in, in elections in the last few cycles and, and what you anticipate going into this this particular cycle. Yeah. So the Supreme Court has been chipping away at 
federal protections for voters for a long time. And they really have ramped up the pace of that in the last couple of years alone. So I mentioned the Shelby County decision in 2013, which for folks who aren't familiar, Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act required that certain states or localities with a history of race discrimination in voting, that they would have to submit any changes to their voting laws, everything from, you know, big, you know, legislative changes to moving a polling place would have to be submitted beforehand to the Justice Department or to a federal court for pre-clearance. They'd basically have to get it approved before making a change. And in the Shelby County decision, a 5-4 majority, with an opinion written by Chief Justice Roberts, they held that the coverage formula, so the way that the Voting Rights Act determined which jurisdictions were subject to preclearance was unconstitutional. And so that effectively wiped out the entire preclearance regime. So states like Texas, Arizona, Georgia, that had a long history of racist voting restrictions from the Jim Crow South, were all of a sudden free to make whatever changes they wanted with no oversight from the federal government beforehand. That left Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which allows private parties, voters, organizations, and the Justice Department to sue states after the fact for implementing or enacting laws or policies that have the effect of reducing access to voting for people based on race or color. Section 2 cases are really fact-intensive, take a really long time. And in the meantime, while those cases are working their way through the court system, the laws that they're challenging often remain in effect. So you're having elections go by under laws that are being challenged for being racially discriminatory. In the last few years, the court has really chipped away at Section 2 as well. In the Brnovich decision in 2021, they made bringing vote denial claims under Section 2 much harder. And just you know, a week ago, the court heard argument in Merrill versus Milligan, which is a case about vote dilution and the drawing of congressional districts to dilute the votes of minority voters and prevent them from electing candidates of their choice. So it hasn't been a dramatic kind of all at once reversal where they say the whole Voting Rights Act is unconstitutional. But little by little, they're taking tools out of the toolbox and leaving voters with not a lot of options to challenge laws that are, you know, sometimes blatantly discriminatory. And it's not just the Voting Rights Act. The court has supercharged this idea called the Purcell Principle that basically gives state governments an out anytime an election is approaching. They say, oh, it's too soon. It's too disruptive. You know, and they ask the court not to block a law because it would be too disruptive to election officials. And, you know, they've given a green light to partisan gerrymandering in in the Rucho case in 2019. So, you know, my organization, Campaign Legal Center, actually put out a report earlier this year about the democracy jurisprudence of the Roberts Court. And if you look at all of their cases having to do with campaign finance, with voting, with redistricting, the only consistent pattern that comes up is that the conservative majority on this court routinely rules in a way that makes America less democratic. Uh, and I don't mean in terms of the Democratic Party, but in terms of you know democracy. They, they rule in a way that is harmful to you know, the structure of democracy. So it's really creating a lot of barriers and it's making voting harder and rolling back a lot of the hard fought protections that we enshrined in federal law half a century ago. I want to go back to the Purcell principle that you mentioned just to highlight how ridiculous <laughs> it is. So 
you know, you mentioned that states are going to court and saying it's, it's, we're too close to the election. We're too close to the election. Let it go forward. But that's when voters need to exercise their right or vindicate their, their rights. You know, if they were to bring a challenge way earlier, the court would say, Oh, it's not ripe yet. We're, we're not ready to hear this particular challenge. And so saying that it's too, too close to an election rather inconsistently is, particularly damaging for voters as they try to just find relief. Yeah. And as they've sort of expanded that Purcell principle and pushed the date at which an election is soon further and further out, they've sort of created a Goldilocks problem where it is always both, it's either too soon to bring a challenge or it's too late. Either the challenge is, oh, that's speculative. The election is so far away. Come back later. Or, well, the election's right around the corner. We don't want to be disruptive. You're too late. And I've had, you know, in multiple cases, state, you know, secretaries of state or attorneys general argue both at the same time <laughs> that our challenges to a law are, it, well, it's speculative because it's so far away, but also it's so soon that it would be disruptive. <laughs> so either way, you know, it's, it's heads I win, tails you lose. Oh my goodness. And, you know, if you look at the order, which was on the shadow docket. It wasn't even like a fully briefed and argued case with a full opinion. So it was an emergency order on a stay appeal. And Purcell, on its face, makes some sense, right? It basically cautions federal courts to consider whether enjoining an election law during an election or you know, on the eve of an election will be disruptive to voters, whether it will cause confusion to the voters. But over time, the Supreme Court and, you know, other conservative circuit courts and and state governments have kind of warped that principle and changed it from a kind of voter focused, like don't confuse the voters with conflicting court rulings to, well, don't cause any inconvenience to election administrators because that's disruptive. And in the Milligan case that I just mentioned, you know, the Supreme Court issued a stay of a lower court decision that came out in February, a full you know, nine months before the election. And it was a redistricting case. You know, it's not going to confuse voters after a, after a census and a redistricting cycle anyway. They, they were already getting new maps. You know, it, to do that nine months out apparently was too soon for this court's liking. And again, it's one of those things, like you said, it's, it's applied incredibly inconsistently, seemingly only to block lower court decisions where plaintiffs win where voters win, where laws uh, that burden voters are enjoined. Well, and many times those lower court decisions are publicized, right? And so you'll get a judge that says, oh, we're actually going to expand, you know, what whatever the policy might be to make sure that voters have an opportunity. And then the court on the shadow docket often switches it back. And so it creates more confusion <laughs> than less oftentimes. Yeah, there's a real whiplash. And, yeah. And there's no... You know, because so many of these sort of Purcell-based decisions come on emergency applications, there's usually very little explanation or reasoning given by the Supreme Court as to why they are lifting a stay or issuing a stay of a decision. So lower courts are actually kind of flying blind. They, you know, they have, they're just getting slapped down without explanation. And so I think that makes it, it creates a chilling effect almost. It makes lower courts more hesitant to issue relief in voting cases because they don't know whether it's too soon or too far or you know what the Supreme Court is going to do because they don't issue full reasoned opinions explaining um, 
you know, this principle that they increasingly rely on. Well, and we should say that the Purcell principle is completely created by the court. This isn't something that Congress has put in place, or this is just something that the court has taken upon itself to create this rule. In a one paragraph order in 2006, the Supreme Court created the Purcell principle out of whole cloth. It's wild the way that sometimes our laws are are administered. I want to ask, has there been a shift towards state courts that you've seen? If federal courts are proving to be a hostile forum for a lot of these claims, are you seeing a move towards state courts to try and find relief there? Yeah, in some jurisdictions, you know, states have their own constitutions as well. And in some jurisdictions, state constitutions are more explicit when it comes to protections for voting. And state courts have interpreted state constitutions more broadly in some cases than the federal constitution. And so state law claims in places, especially like, you know, North Carolina and Pennsylvania have really proven powerful and have been able to protect the interests of voters in ways that federal claims are sometimes, you know, prevented. And so, it's not a perfect solution. It doesn't work everywhere. And, you know, that's why we have a federal constitution and a Voting Rights Act and the 14th Amendment so that these protections aren't sort of piecemeal. And again, like I, like I started off, so that they're not dependent on where you live. But state courts in, you know, in Michigan, in, you know, redder states as well, and, you know, Ohio's Supreme Court um, issued some really great cases, some great opinions, I should say, striking down their congressional map that federal courts later ignored. Even that is a little tenuous as the Supreme Court prepares to hear Moore versus Harper later this term and may, depending on how that case shakes out, decide that actually state Supreme Courts and state constitutions cannot constrain state legislatures when it comes to setting the rules for federal elections. It's a, it's a totally bananas, you know, radical idea, but it's being pushed by a lot of well-resourced litigators, and it has reached the Supreme Court, and at least a couple of the justices in previous concurrences have, have indicated their openness to it. So as much as state courts have been a real a boon for voting rights advocates in some, in some jurisdictions, it's possible that later this term, the Supreme Court will, you know, stomp over and say, actually, no, you can't do that either. So, you know, hopefully not. Like I said, it is a totally, like, unsupported, completely made up idea that state legislatures can act with no constraints from the state constitutions that created them or the state courts that are, you know, it's, it's a separation of powers nightmare. And I don't, I'm hopeful that the court will see through it. But given their history on more generally, um, it's hard not to be skeptical. Yeah, well, to, to keep on the theme of well-resourced kind of batshit ideas. You know, in the last few years, we've seen an actual rise in folks who believe in what has been called the big lie or the idea that the 2020 election was stolen or was conducted improperly. I'm curious what impact the big lie and and the growing belief in the big lie has had on election administration as we head into, you know, these last few weeks. Oh, it's been huge. The conspiracy theories and belief that the 2020 election was somehow, you know, corrupted by fraud or wrongdoing, even though there's no evidence of that, you know, more than 60 courts throughout cases suggesting that because there was no evidence. That idea has permeated a significant portion of the population and is the real driving factor 
behind a lot of the restrictive legislation that states passed in 2021 and 2022. So just on that basic level, having these conspiracy theories about the 2020 election motivating this restrictive legislation is going to make it harder for people to vote and is going to make election administrators jobs. But it doesn't stop there because the same people who are pushing these lies about the 2020 election are also organizing and are getting you know groups of like-minded people together to show up at polling places and at canvassing boards to challenge the eligibility of voters, to challenge ballots, to advocate for election officials to not certify election results. And you know we saw some of that in 2020 in Maricopa County in Arizona, in Michigan and in Pennsylvania and all the sort of hotly contested swing states. There were demonstrators outside of, you know, canvassing boards and things like that. But what's different now is that those same people who are pushing these 2020 election lies, they're not just showing up to these meetings. They are joining these election boards. They are trying to become a part of the election administration process. And so, you know, it's like in it's like the call is coming from inside the house in some <laughs> places, you know, there yeah. are, there are people who wholeheartedly believe in these 2020 election conspiracies who are going to be members of county boards of election or of canvassing boards and who are going to have the power to disrupt election administration from the inside. And that's incredibly dangerous. You know, the only, the only way that a democracy can work is if, all the votes are counted and the results of the election actually reflect the will of the people. And so if you have bad actors who have infiltrated election administration in in the open, it's not like they're like sneaking in, you know, they're they're just they're being elected, they're being appointed by county party chairs in some instances, they're being elected, you know, to have the people who are charged with running our elections not believe that our elections are trustworthy or fair, and to have them be willing to break the rules to make sure that their preferred candidates get elected, or that people who they don't like don't have their votes counted is really dangerous for democracy. And it's something that I know a lot of the legal groups and civil rights groups who monitor these things are really worried about. It's something that we're working on, making sure that we are prepared for. But, you know, it's it's very scary. And it can impact so many different points along the election process, right? Like if if you have someone in place, there may be some things that they do that could be rectified after the fact with checks and balances and with, you know, judicial. But if they put in place policies that keep otherwise eligible voters to vote, for example, if that voter never cast their ballot, there's no way to undo that problem later down the line. Right, exactly. Yeah. So there's so much potential for chaos and disruption here that may not make the front page, but has a real impact in their in their local elections. Yeah. And what what's exacerbating this problem is that a lot of the experienced election officials who, you know, are dedicated, who know what they're doing, who have been doing it for a long time, a lot of them are being driven out of election administration altogether because of the harassment that they are facing from, you know, from some of these groups. People are getting death threats and calls to their homes. And like I said earlier, election officials are they do a lot with a little. They have a million tasks. Their offices are not 
sufficiently resourced by the states in most cases. They are grossly underpaid, in my opinion. And they do what they do because they care about democracy. They ser- they're serving their communities to make sure that everyone gets to vote. And a lot of them are just are deciding that it's not worth it. And with good reason, because they're being physically threatened. And so it's not just that election conspiracy proponents are becoming part of election administration, but also that the steady hands at the top, the experienced people are leaving. So there's, I think, an equally high likelihood of wrongdoing as there is of people just of inexperience leading to human error and of just mistakes being made. And if you have inexperienced election officials making normal human mistakes, you know, in a normal circumstance, that would be fine because we could fix it. And, you know, there are, like you said, checks and balances and review processes and and whatnot. But when you have these big lie proponents waiting to seize on any error, any mistake, any problem as evidence of some grand conspiracy or as a reason not to certify election results, that's when things get really dicey. You're listening to Broken Law. We hope you're enjoying our weekly episodes about the law, whose interests it serves and whose it does not. If you'd like to support the podcast, consider becoming a member of the American Constitution Society today. We are the nation's foremost progressive legal organization and are committed to diversifying the federal bench, reforming the U.S. Supreme Court, and transforming our laws and legal systems so that they protect the lives of all people. When you become an ACS member, you empower our work. Our more than 250 lawyer and student chapters across the country, and you support Broken Law. Become an ACS member today by going to acslaw.org backslash membership. And now back to the conversation. We've seen a number of states go through audit after audit after audit after the 2020 election, and they never quite seem to get the answer that they're looking for. So then we have another one, and I should put audit in quotes because oftentimes these are outsourced to folks that are not qualified to be doing this type of work. What's the actual end game for the folks that are pushing for it? Are they truly believing they're going to find some pocket of votes that weren't counted correctly or that were counted, but incorrectly? Or what is motivating this push for audit after audit? Yeah. So first we should distinguish between like real audits and fake audits. You know, normal, regularly conducted audits and recounts are a normal and healthy part of the election process. That's how you make sure that all your machines are working correctly, that there were no regular human errors. Those are part of the safeguards and the checks and balances. And that's one of the reasons that we know that there was no widespread problem with the 2020 election because things were audited and recounted and double-checked and and you know we made sure that the election went off the way it was supposed to and there wasn't any kind of big error. As far as why things like the Cyber Ninjas audit in, in Arizona and other similar efforts are happening, I think in part, some of the people who are pushing for these things do genuinely believe because they've been lied to by politicians and party leaders and you know social media influencers that the 2020 election was stolen. And they genuinely think that they are going to find the kind of smoking gun evidence you know, a box of, you know, a million votes that weren't counted that mean that their candidate won, even though we are almost two full years out from from that election. Right. But I think the other sort of ulterior motive is I think some of these people 
have no illusions that they're going to find, you know, something that will show that, you know, Donald Trump should have won the 2020 election, but they know they'll find something. They'll find one ballot that was mislabeled. They'll find one machine that, you know, didn't tabulate, you know, maybe five ballots, or they'll find something that looks like a machine didn't tabulate five ballots because it's not on one report because the machine overheated and a poll worker had to write them by hand. And so they're in a different folder or something like that. They're looking for any inconsistency that they can exploit to cast doubt on the legitimacy of the election. So if they can find any sign of, you know, any issue and, you know, no election is perfect. Elections are run by people. They're run at, you know, the county or city level for the most part, which means we don't have one national election. We don't have 51 state elections. We have thousands and thousands of little county and city elections, and they're all run by human beings. And so there's always going to be, you know, ways to improve and little things that, that, you know, could go wrong. And that's what they're looking for so that they can broadcast any tiny discrepancy or inconsistency that they can manufacture, or, you know, if you look at it with one eye closed and your head turned sideways, so that they can cast doubt on the whole system and use that to push more restrictions, use that to convince lawmakers and administrators to, you know, not certify election results. It's, I think, all done in bad faith. None of it's not you know, backed up by any of the data or any of the actual election results. But I think that's what's motivating it. They want to reduce the public's faith in democracy so that they can reshape it the way that they want to. Well, and so often a lot of these voter suppression bills or other restrictions that are put in place come cloaked in what seems like reasonableness. You know, like, oh, there was a problem. There was a problem with the machine. So we're going to do X, Y, or Z and have fewer machines so that we can control whatever the the justification may be. And so I think that it's important for those listening who may not be election law experts to really question when those get put in place. You know, maybe there was a mistake, but it's worth digging in and figuring out what the actual mistake was before just accepting it as, as an excuse for more suppressive laws. Right. They'll look for, you know, a clerical error or a typo or something like that, and use it as a fig leaf to justify a huge sweeping restriction that has nothing to do with the error that they that they claim that they found, and is, in many cases, going to make not only voters' lives harder, but election administrators' lives harder. You know, there's been a recent push in a number of states, including, you know, Nevada and Arizona and Pennsylvania, to require election officials to hand count every ballot because people don't trust the voting machines, you know. There's been all these, you know, Dominion voting machine conspiracies, none of which are supported by any facts. But election officials from both parties in these states have uniformly opposed those restrictions because they don't work. Hand counting is less accurate than machine tabulation. It causes more mistakes. It takes a million times longer. And so if what you care about is, you know, quote unquote, election integrity and what you want is an accurate count, Hand counting paper ballots is not the way you get there, but it takes a lot longer. And so it leaves the final results in doubt for maybe several days, which gives, you know, these conspiracy groups more time to come up with new reasons why the election is flawed and we should just declare their candidate the winner. So I think it's always best to, like you said, look at the stated reasons for an election restriction 
ask whether those reasons are true, whether they are supported by evidence and facts, and then whether those reasons correspond to the restrictions that are in place. And are the restrictions actually going to address this purported problem? Or are they just going to make it harder for people to vote and harder for election administrators to do their jobs? And, you know, are they targeting vulnerable communities? And are they solutions in search of a problem? As you say that, I I can't help but think of California, who sometimes takes a long time to count ballots. And and folks have made the claim that that is problematic, that we should know. We should know election night who won or lost. But correct me if I'm wrong, California's policy is designed in such a way to allow people to vote up until the last minute and have that vote counted, whether or not they mail in their ballot or they vote in person. Is that right? Is, yeah. is that the reason behind the delay in California? Yeah, that's right. And that, you know, there's a saying, I think, among election officials that you can have an election that is two of three things, cheap, fast, or accurate. You cannot have all three. And I think that there's a real misconception among the public that we have always known and had final election results on election day. And that's never been the case in, I think, every state. Their their canvassing and certification deadlines are days, if not weeks, after election day. What we have are media projections based on the reported results out of precincts as they begin counting on election day. And so sometimes using complicated math based on the margins and the number of votes outstanding and projected turnout and the population of the state, media networks can project who they think has won a given race. And, you know, some of your listeners may recall that in some cases, media outlets have had to retract projections. I am old enough to remember the 2000 presidential election when there were many calls in my home state of Florida for both then Vice President Gore and Governor Bush and outlets had to retract both of them because it was, it, you know, it was too close to call. They called too soon because they were still counting ballots. And especially in states that rely heavily on mail voting, states like California, like Colorado, like Arizona, like Utah, a lot of Western states that are physically big and also use a lot of mail voting, it takes longer to count mail ballots than it does ballots in a polling place. The processes are a little more complicated for election officials because they have to verify the ballots as they get them. One of the other things, one of the other reasons that we know that there was no fraud in the 2020 election, because there is a process of making sure that the ballot came from a real person who is a registered voter, and that takes time. And so there's nothing inherently suspect about election results not being finalized for a few days after the election. And in a place like California, that is so big, that has so many voters, where most people vote by mail, and also has incredibly long ballots, because they're electing not just governors and presidents and members of Congress, but also local city councilors and school board members. And they're voting on, you know, a thousand propositions every election, because California makes it really easy to put ballot measures on the ballot. It takes a lot of time. And there's nothing wrong with that, because we'd rather have accurate results than fast results. And we saw that play out in 2020 because of COVID and because of the increased reliance on mail ballots in jurisdictions that weren't used to it. So it took several days for us to get final results in Pennsylvania. It took several days to get final results in Georgia because it was so close. They had to count every ballot. And because it was so close, 
Georgia, even before any of the crazy activists started yelling at them, did a recount. They did a full hand recount to make sure that their machines were correct. I think Georgia ended up recounting the presidential race three or four times. And every time the result was the same. So if we're not going to invest in our elections, and states don't really seem interested in that, if we're not going to invest in the infrastructure and we want them to be correct, which of course we do, we want them to be accurate, they may not be that fast. And there's nothing wrong with that. But a lot of these bad actors and conspiracy theorists take advantage of delays and say, well, why is it taking so long? We should know. There must be something wrong. And that's just based on nothing but assumptions. Well, and it's wild that part of what slows down the process is verifying the voter's identity. Going through those like election security checks is actually part of the process that's slowing it down. If if California could, you know, report final results at like 10 p.m. Eastern time on election day, no one would trust it. That would be insane. There's just no way (laughs) to count that many ballots that quickly. It's just it's physically not possible. They have to count them. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's it's I think it's really ironic that the same people who are arguing that, you know, this is taking too long or we need to change these rules are actually making elections less secure and less accurate when they're the ones saying that, you know, oh, our elections, you know, we need to have more election integrity or or whatever. If they really believed in election integrity, these are not the reforms that they would be pushing um, because they only make things worse. Yep. I, I want to ask, you know, we talked a lot about the noise that's out there right now in the election space. What's getting lost in the noise that, that we should be focused on going into election day and after? What do you want to make sure that we're paying attention to that maybe isn't getting as much attention? Yeah, that's a, that's a really great question. I think that we've heard so much about all of these conspiracy theories. And all of these attempts, all these new voting laws and all of the things that have changed and all of the attempts to either prevent people from voting or subvert election results after the fact that what gets lost in that is the fact that we had an election in 2020 under maybe the worst possible circumstances. There was a global pandemic. It was, it was, you know, we, there were, there were no vaccines. That it was a really chaotic and stressful time. And on top of all of that sort of external stress, we also had higher turnout in a presidential election year than we ever have in our nation's history. It was a recipe for disaster. It could have put a lot of strain on the election. I don't think anybody would have been that surprised if there had been major problems, but there weren't because of the you know, heroic efforts of election administrators, of, you know, civic engagement groups, of voters, we had an incredibly successful election in 2020 under really trying circumstances. The infrastructure of election administration was really battered, but it held. Votes were counted. Election results were certified. People were able to vote for the most part. You know, there's always, there's always isolated problems and there are always, you know, you know, systemic issues that go unaddressed and and we can always do better. But we had a really successful election in 2020 and it was because people stepped up, because people who cared about democracy, people who cared about voting, you know, showed up to their polling place, helped their neighbors request an absentee ballot, volunteered as poll workers, donated PPE to to election offices, you know, got up at four o'clock in the morning to go and canvas mail ballots for, you know, 12 hours in a basketball arena. 
there is a sizable segment of the population who is very loud about all of the problems that they imagine occurred in 2020. And I think there is a larger segment of the population that doesn't spend all their time screaming about it, but, you know, really stepped up and made sure that democracy worked. We run our elections very differently from a lot of other democracies. We don't have a centralized, nonpartisan national election administration agency. That's what everyone else has. We probably should, <laughs> but we don't. Our elections yeah. are run by our neighbors. They are, you know, people who live on your street, on your block, in your apartment building, wherever, are showing up to your local school, your local church, your local community center, and setting up folding tables. And they're just regular, everyday people who devote their time and their energy to making democracy happen. And I don't think that we celebrate that enough. And I think that we need to remind ourselves that like, yes, in the 2022 midterms are also happening under not ideal circumstances. There's a lot of you know, craziness out there, but 2020 was hard and we did it. Our elections happened because we made them happen. And if we want them to continue happening, people need to continue to step up and get involved, be poll workers, register people to vote. It's not enough to just fill out your ballot and drop it in the box or put it in the mail and be done. Democracy only happens if we make it happen. And so I would encourage all of your listeners to sign up to be poll workers, volunteer with the election protection hotline, see how you can help administer elections in your state. Because the people who don't want elections to happen, the people who are fighting to relitigate the 2020 election two years later, they're going to be there. And we need as many or more people who want every vote to be counted in those polling places, on those canvassing boards, participating in a real way in democracy, because that's the only way that we'll be able to keep it. I want to end there because it's such a great place to leave it. We will include a link in our show notes to how to get involved whether it be becoming a poll worker or joining the election protection coalition that Jonathan mentioned, we'll make sure to, to get resources in the show notes so that folks know where to go. Thank you, Jonathan, so much for joining us today and all the work that you as CLC have been doing. I also want to thank our listeners for finding Broken Law. Please be sure to follow and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. If you want to hear more about the case that we talked about a little bit here, Merrill versus Milligan, go back to last week's episode and you can hear a really great conversation with Bradley Hurd of the Southern Poverty Law Center where we dig in on that case. Make sure that you're referring us to your friends, your family, if you're enjoying it. You can also help us out by giving us a five-star review. If you have ideas for future episodes, we really want to hear them. Please email us at podcast at acslaw.org or find us on social media at ACS Law. Together, we'll speak truth to power about the law, whose interest it really serves and whose it does not.